Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with the Doc, the show where we bring your questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Asim Desai, a cardiac electrophysiologist with Providence Mission Hospital in Orange County, California. Today, we're answering your questions about atrial fibrillation, what it is, who might be at risk, the different treatments for the condition, and what it means for you long-term. Remember, everyone, most of our questions will come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. Use the hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, that's hashtag TalkWithTheDoc, for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today. Hello, Dr. Desai. Hi, Mary. Thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to talk about this for many, many reasons, which I'm sure we'll get into. But before I do, when I go off track, let's get started with the easy one. Let's have you explain to the listeners just a little bit about what you do at Providence. Sure. Yeah. So my name is Asim Desai, and I'm in Orange County, California, Providence Mission Hospital, originally from Chicago. I did my training at Stanford, and I've been out here since about 2005. And I focus in on the heart's electrical system. So the heart's an engine and it has an electrical system that drives it so people can get abnormal rhythms develop. And I am one of the experts that focuses on how to diagnose those problems and treat them. I'm called an electrophysiologist. So cardiologist went through all the cardiology training and then subspecialized in this area of electrophysiology, also called EP. Well, I mean, let's dig in on that. What, what does that actually mean, electrophysiology? Because I don't think we hear that a lot. No, and so we've actually rebranded ourselves as a uh, discipline that it used to be the North American Society of Pacing and Electrophysiology is really long title. And so now we're the Heart Rhythm Society. That's the name of the international organization that we're a part of. And electrophysiologists are essentially heart rhythm specialists. So we will take patients who have symptoms of racing heartbeat or what are called palpitations or irregular heartbeat. Sometimes we see patients who faint or are lightheaded and there can be heart rhythm causes for those different symptoms. So we're involved in both diagnosing these issues and we have a variety of different techniques, including electrocardiogram, heart rhythm monitors, implantable heart rhythm monitors and more invasive testing. And then we look at all the different treatment options for patients. And I'm really into integrative heart health and mind-body health. So we definitely try to incorporate lifestyle, diet, stress management into our treatment plan because that does affect your heart and does affect your heart's electrical system. And we have a lot of cool advancements in technology. Mission is one of few hospitals that actually has this robotic system we can talk about later. And so it's really a, a very engaging field because we see a whole range of patients, young, old, different age groups can get different kinds of electrical problems developed. I also like your new name because not only is it shorter and easier to understand, but it also sounds like a band. I think it's a great band name. I know, isn't it? I'll have to remember that. <laughs> and we know you play the guitar, so I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, the topic today is on AFib, and I think we should probably start really high level. What does AFib mean to those people who don't maybe know? So AFib or atrial fibrillation is the most common irregular abnormal heart rhythm worldwide. It affects believe it or not, one of four people over the age of 40 at some point in their life. The primary risk factor is age. So once you get over the age of 65, the incidence goes up 
significantly. And it's estimated that about 6 million Americans have AFib right now. And that number is just going to continue to escalate over the next several decades because people are living longer. And essentially what happens is the heartbeat goes irregular and chaotic, and that results in a drop in the pump efficiency of the heart, the heart being an engine. So what results is symptoms of an ineffective heart, shortness of breath, chest discomfort, lightheadedness, sometimes fainting, sometimes just generalized fatigue. But when the heart does not contract normally, a blood clot can form, and that blood clot can then travel to different parts of the body, most commonly the brain, causing a stroke. So one of the big things about AFib is it's a very common cause of stroke, especially stroke of unknown origin called cryptogenic stroke. Many stroke patients come into the hospital and we can't figure out what caused the stroke. And it turns out AFib can be the cause in many of those cases. And then the other aspect of AFib is weakening of the heart muscle causing congestive heart failure where the heart can't pump blood around to the vital organs. So AFib, irregular heartbeat, abnormal electrical system, chaotic, rapid irregular heart rate, and a variety of different risk factors can trigger it, age being one. It's sort of like arthritis of the electrical system. As we get older, we get scar tissue in our electrical system just as we do in our joints, and that creates a series of short circuits. So it's almost like a bunch of broken wires in the heart, Mary. Wow. I mean, that's a lot of people if you think about it. One in four over, did you say age 40? Yeah, over age 40 at some point in life. And in particular, 65 and older is where the incidence mm -hmm. goes way up. But the thing, Mary, now that we're seeing is younger patients getting AFib. And there's kind of a couple of different reasons for that. One is obesity, because that's strongly linked to AFib. And we are in an obesity epidemic, especially in the US. And COVID obviously didn't help because people are less active and the nutrition and diet has gotten worse in many cases. But then the other thing is we see these high endurance athletes or professional athletes who have low resting heart rates because of their cardiovascular fitness, that as they're getting older in their 40s and 50s and 60s, they're starting to get AFib. So I have a lot of cyclists, a lot of runners. Otherwise, people who you'd think would be really healthy are actually getting this condition through a different mechanism called the vagus nerve. But it's, it's really a condition that can affect any of us. I mean, do you typically know, is it something that comes on suddenly and I go from one day I feel fine to the next I don't? Or is it something that maybe I've had a while and I just haven't known about? Yeah, that's a great question, right? So the heart's electrical system is kind of like the one in your car in your house. It can act normally 99% of the time and then 1% of the time something happens. And so it's very unpredictable. So when you go in for routine testing to a doctor's office, including just your blood pressure and your heart rate, or getting different electrical recordings of your heart, like an electrocardiogram, your rhythm may be normal, but then you may have an episode of atrial fibrillation even while you're sleeping and not be aware of it. So it is actually a commonly a silent arrhythmia where people may not have symptoms. The most classic symptoms of AFib include rapid irregular heart rate, palpitations, shortness of breath, lightheadedness, like I mentioned. But it is one of those things, Mary, where it isn't just an overnight disease, the risk factors contribute to the development of the disease over time. And AFib starts as what we call paroxysmal, where you go in and out of these episodes. So one day you may be fine, the next day your heart may race for five minutes or 15 minutes or 20 minutes, and then it goes back to normal rhythm and people may not necessarily think anything of it. 
The other thing is AFib can sometimes present with just generalized fatigue, no heart symptoms at all. And there's so many reasons why people can be fatigued and tired. And so they don't necessarily think to check their pulse and see if it's irregular. You may not have any chest symptoms or cardiovascular symptoms at all. And as AFib episodes occur, the heart's a muscle, so there's a muscle memory. Every time you have AFib, it makes it easier to have more AFib. There's a term AFib begets AFib. So I like to use a lot of analogies with my patients, Mary, in terms of how to explain this disease. And when you talk about AFib being a progressive disease, it's really like electrical cancer. And early on in this electrical cancer, you go in and out of AFib, this paroxysmal AFib. And then as these episodes continue, you go into it longer and longer until eventually you're just in continuous AFib. So if, if you have AFib, then is this like a, a life sentence? I mean, is this something you're always going to have? Because you just said electrical cancer. And I think everybody went, oh, right? Like that's a big statement. So is this something yeah. I can quote unquote cure, fix, resolve, get better? Absolutely. And that's the key is having hope and realistic hope. And so by no means is this a life sentence. I mean, the, the amazing thing in modern day technology is we can do so many things for people who have a diagnosis of AFib. And honestly, in many cases, cure it. You know, we, we do have cases, many, where we can cure it. And if we can't cure it, we can manage it very effectively. And so when you look at AFib, you look at where when someone gets diagnosed, you look at what stage they are in the disease. And there's different ways of doing that. One being what's called an echocardiogram or, or ultrasound of the heart, where you can see how large are the chambers that cause the AFib, one in particular called the left atrium. That kind of tells you, Mary, how long someone's maybe having AFib for, and that's also predictive of how they're going to respond to different types of treatment. Well, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, well, one, my dad has AFib. I probably should have told you that in the beginning. So I have so many questions, right? Like genetics, the whole nine yards, but you were talking about like some of the symptoms, right? And, and when you were saying them, I was thinking, well, gosh, if I had anxiety, I might think it was a panic attack or fatigue could be so many things. So how do you actually test and find out if somebody has AFib? Absolutely. And, and also, it, it, just like anything in medicine, it gets back to, you know, the sort of deductive reasoning. And if someone has symptoms, you know, what's the likelihood the heart's causing it, right? So for AFib, I mentioned that some of the different risk factors. And so if you have an otherwise healthy person who has a, a run of rapid heartbeat, you know, in most cases, it's not AFib. But if you have obesity, diabetes, coronary artery disease, sleep apnea, excessive alcohol. These are all different risk factors and triggers for AFib. If that same person has the symptoms, then we're much more likely to think that it could be AFib. So traditionally, the way to check the heart's electrical system is an office EKG, where you're just doing a recording of the rhythm. And it's fine for the time that you're doing it in the office. The problem is, as I mentioned, these rhythm issues, not just AFib, but other ones, come and go. And so in many cases, someone shows up to their doctor's office you know, and they may not be that frequent visits, right? Like maybe once or twice a year and they're in a normal rhythm and we wouldn't even think that they could be having AFib. So if someone is at risk, even if they don't have symptoms, if someone has multiple risk factors, it's always useful to consider doing some kind of external heart rhythm monitoring. And we have a variety of different devices that you can put on the skin, one that's actually waterproof and wireless, a pretty cool piece of technology called a patch monitor. And that continuously records the rhythm. So you'll be able to catch five minutes of AFib in the middle of the night. Or if someone has symptoms 
of rapid heart rate or shortness of breath and they're not sure what's going on, they can press a button on the monitor and it'll timestamp the symptoms so we can see what's going on with the heart rhythm. Now, as you may have heard, Apple has the watch that can record an EKG and detect AFib. There's other products. Cardio Mobile was one of the first to market that can record an EKG. And while they're not perfect, there's generally about an 80% chance of detection of AFib accurately. So it's not, it's not bad. I mean, obviously, you have to be cautious about not interpreting or over-interpreting some of the recordings. But in many cases, if the, if the watch tells you it's AFib, in many cases, it is AFib. And then if it says indeterminate, that's where the doctor can look at the tracings and, and get a sense of whether there's a artifact, electrical artifact or, or extra beats or something that may be making it look like AFib. So now the power is back in the public's hand of being able to self-diagnose AFib. And that's been a major game changer with all these wearable devices that we have. Totally. And I would much rather have a false positive, right? I think I have AFib yeah. and find out I don't than not to know and maybe exactly. have a serious occurrence, right? Yeah. That's that's right. Okay. So I have to ask the question since I already said my dad has it. Is it genetic? Like, should I be worried? It's a great question. So what we know about the heart's electrical system is there are definitely genetics involved. Usually with genetics, it's going to, you're going to generally see multiple family members. So our genetic AFib patients, they have like a brother with AFib and a parent with AFib and an uncle with AFib. And usually the onset of the AFib is at a younger age, like less than age 60, oftentimes in 40s and 50s, that type of thing. If someone is older, if they're over the age of 60 or 65, and say they have other risk factors for AFib, like they have diabetes, they're overweight, they have other types of heart disease, prior heart attack, sleep apnea, thyroid diseases, they have some of these other risk factors, then that alone is the reason why they have AFib. And you don't necessarily need to implicate genetics as a, as a contributor there. So it's all about defining, if you have a family member with AFib, defining what that family member's risk factors are for their AFib. If they're otherwise healthy and they got AFib, and especially if they got AFib at a younger age, then yes, there could be definitely some genetics involved. And certainly if you ever feel any symptoms of racing heartbeat or irregular heartbeat, then it, it's never a bad idea to see a doctor and get one of those monitors done to at least kind of screen you, you know, for AFib. This is so fascinating and I have so many questions, but we do have to take a quick break. Um, but when we do come back, we'll continue talking about AFib.
We are back on Talk With a Doc, and we have Dr. Asim Desai, and we are talking about atrial fibrillation. And right before I was asking you about genetics, and you were talking about, you know, kind of the age that it's onset and, and that sort of thing, talk to me about kind of what other risk factors are. I think we've touched on a couple of them, right? You mentioned some obesity and that sort of thing. But if I'm just looking at this from a really general perspective, what are, say, the five or six things that I should be looking for? So I would think of AFib as just another example of a body out of balance. And so the risk factors for AFib, the number one is age. So as we get older, again, we get scar tissue in the electrical system and it can create short circuits causing AFib. Obesity, high blood pressure, diabetes, heavy alcohol intake, interestingly, is now presenting itself as a risk factor, independent risk factor for AFib. Really? Sleep apnea. Yeah, yeah. And even huh. small amounts of alcohol in someone who may be genetically predisposed to AFib or have other risk factors, alcohol can be a tipping point. So we've seen actually a lot more AFib as a result of COVID. And one of the reasons is people are less active, gaining weight and drinking more alcohol. That's really interesting. And you did mention sleep apnea as well. Yeah, and sleep apnea, it's, it's so under-recognized. 
you know, there's two kinds of sleep apnea. Sleep apnea is where you stop breathing at night, oxygen levels drop, and that can have a profound effect on all aspects of your body, including your heart and its electrical system. It can promote these short circuits. And so, and you don't have to have the AFib episode occur at the time that you have the sleep apnea episode. Oh, weird. That, yeah, yeah. It's the repetitive drop in oxygen over time that's what stresses the electrical system of the heart. And so, you know, usually with sleep apnea, we think of snoring as a, as a symptom or people feel really tired during the day, like fall asleep easily during the day. They don't feel like they got a restful night's sleep. Well, there's, that's obstructive sleep apnea where you have the snoring and the tongue obstructs the airway. But you also have central sleep apnea related to the brain's control of your breathing process. And in that case, you won't have snoring. You just will have these very brief periods where you're not breathing. So you may not be aware of it, certainly. Your partner, if you're sleeping next to someone in bed, may not be aware of it at all. So with AFib patients, we have a very low threshold to do a screening test for sleep apnea. It's a home test that you can do. And the, some of the other risk factors include being overweight, for example, as a risk factor for sleep apnea. So it's always something that I can't tell you, Mary, how many times I've had people say, there's no way I have sleep apnea. And we, and we do the test and they have sleep apnea. And that actually is treated and their AFib improves dramatically. So the key with AFib is, and if your listeners take home the key point here today, it's early detection and early intervention and managing those lifestyle and risk factors, because that's really result in the best outcome. The treatments that we have, the medications, the, the procedures, they're important, but we really want to be in a place where actually preventing that disease from happening. I think that's fabulous takeaway, right? But let's talk about what if I don't treat it? Like, what if it's left untreated? What does that look like? Yeah, it's a great question. So AFib is not the same thing as heart attack or cardiac arrest. It's, it's this irregular rhythm, as I mentioned. And the, the, the biggest concern with AFib is stroke. And so if you don't treat your AFib, in other words, if you stay, if you live in AFib, you, you, many people do do that, then you need to be on some kind of protection for stroke that can either come in the form of a blood thinner, or there's devices now that we can implant in the heart that allow you to prevent any strokes from occurring in the setting of AFib. So you wanna be evaluated for your stroke risk. The other thing you wanna make sure of is that the heart rate's under good control. So the heart rate can be irregular, but you just don't want it to be fast because if it's too fast, and when I say fast, I mean like if it's over 100 beats a minute at rest, that can weaken the heart muscle. So we do have patients where their AFib has progressed beyond the point that we can get them back into a normal rhythm, that we use the strategy of leaving them in AFib, but we manage their stroke risk and their heart rate, and they do fine. So the real reason to get your AFib treated, primary reason is if you have symptoms related to your AFib. You know, if we have someone who comes in and say, for example, they're 80 and they've been in AFib for several years and they're otherwise pretty asymptomatic, we may elect to keep that person in AFib. However, more and more now, we're, we're moving towards trying to get more and more people into normal rhythm because the, the technologies have gotten so much safer and more effective that we can take patients who may be sicker, older, have more medical problems and able to get them back into rhythm because the heart functions best and your body functions best when your heart is coordinated. So it, it is an important thing. And then the other thing is a lot of times people don't realize they have symptoms from their AFib, especially if they've been sort of living with it and not realizing it. Fatigue being a common present, presenting kind of symptom, 
people don't realize they're having symptoms from the AFib until their rhythm is restored. We do a procedure called cardioversion where we can shock the heart into normal rhythm with an electrical impulse. And I've seen cases where people have had this sort of non-specific fatigue and then when I restore the rhythm it's like night and day for them they feel so much better and they never had any cardiac symptoms their main symptom was fatigue so we have sort of a philosophy in our field that anyone who has AFib really should give consideration to being evaluated by an AFib specialist so that can come in the form certainly of, of cardiologists they, they see AFib all the time However, electrophysiology is now a large enough field that there's electrophysiologists everywhere in the world. And so there's always people around that this is all we do is live and breathe AFib. It's always worth getting an evaluation to see, you know, what the different treatment options are. Well, if I wanted to, or if somebody listening wanted to see a specialist like yourself, how would I typically do that? Would I have to go to my primary care physician first and get a referral? Can I go direct or does it kind of vary? Obviously, part of it depends on insurance. So a PPO, you certainly can go directly to the specialist that, of your choice. HMO, often you do have to go through a primary care physician. And often in HMOs, especially like Kaiser, for example, you have to go through the primary care physician who then refers to cardiology, who then refers to electrophysiology. Sometimes it goes that route. But we're making it easier and easier for people to come directly to electrophysiologists without necessarily needing to go through this whole referral network. I would say that, you know, Medicare patients, PPO patients, uh, people who non-HMO patients usually can get to an electrophysiologist pretty easily. And for HMO patients, I think the key to empower people is for people to just, if they really want to have that evaluation by an electrophysiologist, to have that open conversation with their primary care or their cardiologist about, look, I just really want to evaluate all my options and I want to see someone who specializes in AFib, there's a there's a great website called upbeat.org, U-P-B-E-A-T.org, and it actually is from the Heart Rhythm Society, which is our international organization, and people just put in their city or their zip code, and anywhere in the world, actually, it'll help locate local AFib specialists, local electrophysiologists. That's super cool. Y'all heard it here. Um, you know, this topic is so interesting and we had a lot of people send in questions and when we were reading through them, a couple of them really stuck out for me. And one of them was um, from Jason who said, I love my coffee, but do I have to eliminate caffeine if I'm diagnosed with AFib? That's a key question that Jason's asking. I'm glad he asked that. So there are things that we eat and drink that can act as triggers for AFib, most notably any stimulants like caffeine and then alcohol. Now, it's not that you necessarily have to give up alcohol in particular, and we've learned this from recent studies, even small amounts can act as a trigger. And it's not something that you necessarily, you drink something and you go right into AFib. It's that cumulative effect of, of having it. Caffeine, it's a little less so. We, in other words, we're a little bit more liberal in saying, you know what, one cup of coffee is probably okay, or certainly decaf or half-calf. Less is better. Less is more. So, you know, if you if you have AFib and you notice that when you drink a little caffeine, your heart just starts beating fast, or there, you just you just want to have that body awareness. If you start noticing anything odd there, then that's your body's way of really trying to tell you, like, don't drink that caffeine. So, Jason, it's not that he can't drink the caffeine, and certainly that I don't know the specifics of his situation, but uh, let's just talk generally. 
we do have some of our AFib patients drinking caffeine or even drinking alcohol, but we've learned quite a bit recently that any of these substances are just not good for the heart's electrical system. And the mechanism, so, so caffeine is like adrenaline. It's like the stress hormone that your body produces. Caffeine is essentially a form of that. And so it directly affects the electrical system. And then in addition, caffeine does two other things. It depletes your body of magnesium and potassium. And those are two electrolytes that are critical for a healthy electrical system and can be triggers for AFib if they're depleted. And then the last piece is they can de the caffeine and alcohol as well can dehydrate you and dehydration can be a trigger for AFib. So, so it's, it's kind of like a triple threat almost from both caffeine and alcohol. Wow. It's so interesting. It's so fascinating. We, the one that really tossed me was another kind of food one, which was I've heard uh, Layla said, I read that if I eat more bananas to manage AFib, I'll have better success. Is that true or a myth? Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's been shown in a like sort of a large scale trial that bananas in particular, but I think what she's getting at is bananas are high in magnesium and potassium. And so foods that are high in magnesium and potassium, what they do is they help reduce the likelihood that you're going to get what we call premature beats that then trigger AFib. So our, our heartbeat starts in the electrical system in an area called the sinus node, which is a group of cells in the top right portion of the heart. And the brain and the heart talk to each other through the autonomic nervous system to make this heartbeat happen and respond appropriately to stress and different kinds of environmental events. And so other parts of the heart, though, have the ability to independently fire and, and have electrical activity. And so if these areas act up, they can cause these premature beats often felt as like a skipping heartbeat. And those skipping heartbeats actually can trigger AFib if enough of them happen and you have other risk factors. So the idea behind the banana, the idea behind, for example, unsalted nuts like almonds, green leafy vegetables, you know, all of these things have higher amounts of potassium, magnesium. And what that does is that it helps reduce the likelihood of those premature beats. So I wouldn't say there's a lot of evidence that eating more bananas reduces your risk of AFib. But what I would say is that foods that are high in magnesium and potassium definitely can help calm your electrical system and that calming effect helps reduce the chances of AFib. I like it. So we're not going on an all banana diet here, but it's definitely something. A lot, of, car a lot of carbs. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of carbs and bananas. So you gotta be careful. Right? Oh, grapes too. Such a loss. Um, you know, we did have a question, which I thought was really interesting, which was, you know, does AFib affect men and women differently? And I've heard that it affects African-Americans more often. Is there any truth to that? Is it kind of just everybody yeah. or? Yeah. I mean, just like many other health conditions, we definitely see racial, gender, ethnic, variances. And obviously, some of it's due to sort of access to healthcare uh, issues and disparities in that, you know, like we're seeing with COVID right now, we see it with the heart, we see it with different aspects of heart disease. But also, especially with women and men, women often have more atypical symptoms of different heart issues. So whether it's a heart attack, women often don't get chest discomfort, they may just get GI distress, they may be thinking they're having a gallbladder attack, and that's actually a heart attack. Well, in the same way with AFib, women don't have as commonly like rapid heartbeat palpitations that you think it's something going on in your heart. They may present more with just fatigue or loss of energy as their primary symptoms. So there are studies that have shown women tend to have more atypical symptoms. Uh, there are studies that have shown that the episodes of AFib tend to last longer and occur more frequently in women, especially postmenopausal. There's something about the loss of that hormone protection. And then the last piece is that the stroke risk is higher in women, actually. And it's, again, thought to be due to the hormonal connection with clotting. And so 
that's definitely something to be considering when you're evaluating a person's risk of stroke is also including their gender. And in fact, gender is included in our stroke risk assessment. It's an independent risk factor of uh, female gender. As far as African-Americans, Latinos, and other populations, a lot of it is tied, a lot of increased AFib is tied to the medical conditions that they have. So there's a greater percentage of African-Americans that have high blood pressure, that have diabetes, that have obesity, and those are the risk factors for AFib. So it's not that the, the race is there a specific connection to AFib, it's the, it, the, the medical conditions alongside it. And a lot of those medical conditions are not well controlled because of access to healthcare issues. That all makes sense. I mean, I think so much of it comes down to access and equity, it but, it does. Um, you know, early in the conversation, you were talking about kind of these high intense, high impact athletes. So my, yeah. I, that kind of got me thinking, like, if I have AFib, is exercise a problem? Like, if I do too much exercise, is that going to cause an issue? So generally speaking, no. However, the small subset of patients that, again, may have genetics involved and other factors, high it's really the high endurance athletes. It's the like, sort of extreme sports and people who have a resultant low heart rate. So your heart rate gets lower when you exercise aggressively because your vagus nerve, which is part of your um, autonomic nervous system, is actually in an active state. And it's usually a sign of good conditioning, good cardiovascular conditioning. But too much of one thing may not be good. And so this really low heart rate makes it easier to have those skipping beats that can trigger AFib. So that's one of the theories as to why these athletes are getting it. The other thing we're seeing is that a lot of these athletes are involved in sports and activities that involve like sudden adrenaline surges. So football players, for example, retired football players have a six times higher risk of AFib than their counterparts of the same age. And th there's a lot of that sudden adrenaline, sudden starting, sudden stopping. There's so many examples. Billy Jean King has AFib. Kenley Jansen from the Dodgers recently couple of years ago was in the media all about his AFib that he had during a, a game that he was pitching in Denver. We see the vast number of athletes in different fields, like Larry Bird has AFib, for example. So it's it's not that exercise is, is, is a trigger for AFib. I'm not saying that. And in fact, people tend to have less AFib episodes. You don't, people don't tend to go into AFib when they're exercising. They tend to go into AFib at rest, like in the evening. And that's because the heart rate's slower and it's easier to have these sort of triggers and premature beats. When you're exercising, your heart rate's faster and it suppresses those abnormal circuits. It's just that everything is a balance in life. So you just want to make sure that when you are exercising, you're hydrating well, you're getting good recovery, you're getting good rest. Yoga actually helps reduce AFib. There's been a couple of studies showing that. So we're oh, really, cool. yeah, we're really uh, advocating that for our patients. To, to do yoga and also to do meditation because there's some data on that as well. Well, you you have a book called Restart Your Heart and you talk a lot about holistic and integrative health approaches. And I would assume that that's maybe part of the holistic piece as well, this yoga and meditation sort of thing. Yeah, exactly. It all has to do with the brain-heart connection. You know, the brain and the heart are very similar organs. Like the mechanism of a stroke is just like the mechanism of a heart attack. A clot forms in an artery and blocks it up. The mechanism of a seizure in the brain is actually very similar to heart rhythm disorders in the electrical system of the heart called cardiac arrhythmias. And that's what AFib is, is an arrhythmia. And so because these two organs are very similar and they're connected with this information superhighway, the autonomic nervous system, they talk back and forth to each other all the time in response to threat and safety, you know, it's sort of to promote our survival. 
And so you really want to think about when you're thinking about any health condition, and in particular AFib, that kind of holistic approach that includes the brain, the heart, nutrition, your other organs. So meditation and yoga in particular help to calm the fight or flight response. And the fight or flight response is definitely implicated in a lot of these rhythm issues. So that's why for me, it's a big thing. We see over and over again where like someone will be in AFib at home and then they go to the emergency room and they're getting ready to get shocked. And then immediately they convert on their own because they're in a safe place. They know they're going to get treatment. We see that time and time again. And, you know, it certainly supports the idea that the brain is exerting a powerful effect over the heart. We see people have dangerous heart rhythms and, and have cardiac arrest when they're undergoing severe emotional stress. There's something about that surge of adrenaline that can trigger the electrical system. And so that brain-heart connection. And then, as I mentioned, when, when you look at AFib, the outcomes of treatment are so much better when you treat risk factors. So, you know, you don't want to just go in and use a medicine or do a procedure like ablation and, and not do weight management, stress management, healthy nutrition. There's studies now that have shown that people have a better outcome when you optimize those risk factors. And, and you know, as electrophysiologists, we've been remiss in that and we're just learning more and more. And so that's an important point for anyone who has AFib to know is it's not just you have a procedure, have a medicine and it's fixed. You got to look at the whole body. So it's a lifestyle thing. It is. Well, we're, we're almost out of time. So I'm going to give you the same question I give everyone toward the end. Is there anything we haven't covered on this topic that you want to make sure the audience knows? I would say the big thing is just become informed about the condition. And so there's so many great resources. Heart Rhythm Society is HRS online. I have a website, drsteamdesai.com. There's a lot of information there. And I think that's, that's the most important thing is having open conversations with your healthcare providers about this. People can learn more about Apple Watch and all these other wearable devices that can detect AFib. And also just remember that you have to treat the whole body and lifestyle, diet, as well as any medications or procedures that need to be done. One last point that we didn't cover to just mention is there's a lot of data now showing if you intervene earlier with a procedure called catheter ablation where we can freeze or cauterize the circuits, you actually have a much better outcome. So we're much more apt now to recommend rather than a trial of medications to go towards ablation because it's gotten so much safer. So that's definitely something people should ask their doctors about if ablation was not discussed you know, why, why are they not an option or why should be, they be on a medicine? People often ask about devices like pacemakers and what role they have. So those are just important things to, to consider. And I just encourage people to, to go out. There's lots of resources now for it. And as you mentioned, my book, Restart Your Heart, has a lot of this information in there too. Well, this has been a great conversation. I think we could have many, many more with you. We probably will have you back. But thank you so much, Dr. Desai, for joining us today on Talk with the Doc and to everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. Make sure to listen to future shows on Dash Radio under our Future of Health radio station or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.